there's unknown. You have to realize that when you need to be the most optimistic is when there's unknown. Welcome to Tearing Up My Heart, Emotional Leadership Lessons, the podcast where we explore the connection between emotions and leadership. In each episode, we will dive into a specific core emotion in an unrehearsed interview of selective high-level leaders. Join me, Jenna Heath, as we navigate the roller coaster of emotions that come with leadership and discover valuable insights that will empower you to become a more emotionally aware and impactful leader. From personal anecdotes to expert interviews, this podcast is your guide to mastering the delicate dance between the heart and the mind. Get ready to tear up old notions and pave the way for a new era of compassionate and effective leadership. Let the journey begin. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Tearing Up My Heart, Emotional Leadership Lessons. I am just so honored because so many of you gave such great feedback on episode one, and I feel like today's conversation is going to bring just as much value, if not more. Um, I'm joined by yet another one of my incredible friends who has accomplished so much in his life, um, his short life. He is young, so don't look at him and be like 90-year-old. Those of you that are watching on YouTube, which plug, you can also watch this on YouTube. Um, but he is just an incredible human being, and I'm excited for Chris to be with us today. So Chris, thanks for being here. I'm excited, Jenna. Thank you so much. Very proud of you for getting this done. And I'm a big fan already after the first episode. Thank you, friend. I appreciate that. Uh, also, a pro tip, get friends that support you and all the weird things you do. <laughs> it's a good way to live your life. Well, I'm really excited because so currently you serve as regional vice president for Universal Health Services, which is a huge healthcare organization. Um, but prior to that, you served in the Army for over 10 years, two deployments, um, master's in social work. You have such a very vast, interesting background. Um, but I think one of the things I find most interesting about you is your service during the Route 91 Harvest Festival here in Las Vegas, which trigger warning to anyone listening, we may touch on that subject. So if you have any um, trauma in regards to gun violence, I suggest maybe you skip through some parts. But I am just so proud of the role that you played during that time in our city and how you really invested into our community. I think it says a lot about who you are. And I feel like you've continued to do a lot of that great work in your leadership roles and just as a friend. So when I was talking to you about today's podcast, I gave you some different emotions that you could choose from. And you decided to focus on optimism. So we're defining optimism today as um, being optimistic isn't about being naive to challenges of life, but approaching them with a positive outlook. So optimism is a mental attitude characterized by a hopeful and positive outlook on life, events, and the future. It involves the belief that things will generally turn out for the best and often leads to resilience, perseverance, and a proactive approach to challenges. So keep that in mind as we dive into optimism today. Are you ready for your first question? Go for it. All right, let's start easy. So what does optimism mean to you personally and how has it affected your life? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think whenever you sent me those topics uh, of kind of, you know, one of the things I looked at was through the lens of from being a frontline operator all the way through being um, an executive leader, 
what are the things that we're most challenged with, right? And for me personally, um, it's the unknown, right? And it's, it's having to uh, function in a time of uncertainty or having to move forward on a path that you may not know where it's going to end or where it's even going to take you. And in order to be optimistic, you have to be faced, in my opinion, with something that's unknown, right? That's kind of the core of being optimistic. If you know what's going to happen, it's a little bit easier to be calm. It's a little bit easier to be realistic, right? So if I told you if to count from one to 10, um, you would know that after you say three, you're going to say four. Now, if I told you that I'm going to give you a mathematic equation that I want you to solve in your head, you can be really uh, pessimistic and think, man, I'm, I'm really not good at math. Or you could say from an optimistic standpoint, I hope that I get something that I know. Um, and if I don't, I'll take it in stride and kind of react to whatever is said. And so I really was drawn to the kind of the aspect of optimism because I do think it's really overlooked, especially when you look at where we've been the last four years, not even just in healthcare, but as a country, you know, COVID has hit us so hard in the way that we live our lives. And when I talk to people about COVID, even family members, uh, there's different lenses you see that through, right? We've, I feel like from a healthcare perspective, um, it's changed how we do um, care delivery for the better, right? And to me, that's an optimistic outlook when we think about leading healthcare innovation or leading healthcare forward. We have things like telehealth that are never going to go away. I can remember one of the first big kind of projects that I worked on after becoming a master's level social worker was uh, a tele-behavioral health service line for pediatric patients. And back then, this was 2000, oh gosh, 2014, 2015, this was something that was unheard of, right? That you would have, that telehealth was um, just as effective as seeing somebody face-to-face. -face. And a lot of the research is showing that. And so, uh, again, I think optimistic uh, outlooks are critical to being successful. That's one of the reasons why I picked it. But I also feel like it just impacts us all. It impacts us when we wake up in the mornings. It impacts us when we get to work. It impacts us when you get home. Um, and it impacts you even in your leisure time. So that's one of the reasons why I picked it. Um, but to me, optimism, like I said, is being able to face something that is unknown. Not necessarily a challenge. Um, but I think it, it speaks a lot to having to remain... Uh, being mindful um, and self-aware and environmentally aware um, so that you don't kind of jump to reactions that could lead to negative uh, emotions or uh, impulsive interactions with uh, your emotions or, or others. I love that you just bring that up because I think that obviously this entire podcast is about the emotional side of leadership. And I find that more often than not, even really great leaders jump to emotion to emotion pretty quickly and don't have the wherewithal to kind of pause and say, wow, I am feeling this way. Maybe I need to take a second and then try to reevaluate what I should do next. And I feel like that goes in alignment with what you just shared about, you know, looking at something from that optimistic lens, even when it's a tragedy or a challenge or just 
not a great situation in general. So knowing you for the last decade or so, I can definitely say just as a human being, you are a fairly optimistic person, even when faced with adversity. How do you develop that? Or how do you, how would you encourage folks to develop that, that maybe they're a little bit more like me and they just tend towards realism? No. Yeah. And I think that's a good, and it's, I think the other piece there is there's, there's always, I think historically been this connotation around optimism being a good reaction and, and realism being a negative reaction. I, I think there's value in both. And I think that's where the balance is at. I think a lot of times uh, to your question about how do you develop that? If we just focus on one of those, I think we lead ourselves into something that's, um, that's, that's frankly misleading, right? That we're not always going to be, it's not always rainbow and butterflies, right? That's what people say. Yeah. And so there's certain parts of optimism that uh, is grounded in realism. And so being able to see, let's say in a crisis, what a lot of research is showing is that employees or family members or people that view you as a leader, um, they want someone who's going to remain calm and they want someone that's going to provide a positive vision that's grounded in realistic expectations. And part of that is there is the unknown. And so I go back to the very first position that I had as an executive leader in a hospital. I, I became a CEO, right? I was 29, 30. And at that age, there was a lot of things I didn't know. And one of the things that I held on to was someone gave me a compliment once that I seem calm all the time, right? And I really wanted to build on that because I found that people reacted well to that. And they saw me more as a leader, not necessarily being numb to emotions, but more so being self-aware, um, managing that self-awareness, managing the environmental um, situation that has come up, no matter how big or small. And so, but being a CEO at a very young age um, in Las Vegas, I looked to a lot of literature. Like, what, what are some things that I can take right now with me, put in my back pocket to help me get through? And one of the things that I saw was, it was an article, and I, I can't find it to this day. I think it was a small publication, but there was a gentleman that was interviewed who had just become a CEO at the age of 30. And the article was about, like, how do you lead when you're young, like CEO at 30? And he said, number one thing, remain calm, right? Um, and number two is, as long as you know the things that make your team successful, what they need to accomplish those tasks, how to get those things to them, and how to track their success, your goal. Everything else comes with experience. And so I've taken that in a lot of different ways. I've taken that from a technical standpoint. When I'm hiring leaders, I look for them to be able to function in their job. But also, what is the attitude that they're bringing to the team? Are they going to be someone that when the going gets tough, they shut down and are pessimistic or don't want to work with anyone because they kind of um, crawl into a space where they don't want to be um, bothered, right? As a leader, it's difficult to do that. It's not a wrong or a right. Some people have that reaction, and that's perfectly fine for the situation that they're in. But when people are looking to you to lead and look into you for vision, those reactions are difficult to have. So 
as a young leader, one of the things that I kind of did to, uh, I think, to uh, feed that optimism and that calmness was focus a lot on um, in the moment things like breathing or uh, being mindful of what thoughts are coming into my head. I feel like there's a lot of similarities between optimism and what we're supposed to do internally to be optimistic and mindfulness, right? This kind of dialectical behavioral where we're seeing things as they, as they come up, processing them before we react. And so you can do that with little things. I, as you mentioned, I served in the military. I deployed twice to Iraq to provide behavioral health care. And what that does um, to, to those that have provided care overseas is you're experiencing the same things. I was going through the same mortar attacks and I was going through the same relationship and communication problems that the soldiers that I was counseling were going through. And so having to really get ahead of those and understand, okay, I'm teaching a class or I'm telling these troops every day what's going on physiologically, what are the thoughts that are popping into their head to lead them to impulsive behaviors. And I realized some of those things I wasn't practicing myself. And so being able to kind of slow down, again, remain calm, um, and I, I don't say that lightly. It takes a lot to remain calm in situations where it's hard to be optimistic. But then look, look for that silver lining, right? And understand where that comes from. So, so I think that piece I, I brought with me into the professional world um, because, again, you're in a situation as a leader where you're going through the same thing. COVID's a great example. We were all going through not being able to go out or having to wear a mask in the grocery store or in the most extreme circumstances, losing loved ones to a disease that we didn't really know much about. But you had to go to work and put on that optimistic outlook um, and move forward. I think what we learned through that, and one of the things that has, again, to answer your question, helped me grow that was um, it's it's easy to go too optimistic. As a as an operator, as a frontline uh, worker, I, I could... I feel like I could see a leader that was falsely being optimistic. It's not, it, everything's not okay. People don't want, in my opinion, and what I think what research has shown is that people don't want a leader that's going to come in and tell them everything's going to be fine. That's not optimism. That's being unrealistic, right? And so optimistic is, guys, we're going to get through this, okay? It's going to be challenging. There's going to be some unknowns, but here's the path that we're going to take. And if we have to veer from it, then we will redirect, readdress, and move forward in a different path. But we're all in this together. Like, those are the things that are optimistic when it comes to leadership. Those are the things that are going to lead you to be a successful leader and keep people safe and make people feel safe in times of crisis and unknown. So I think just kind of focusing on situations like that um, and building those up. I don't know if we'll touch on it, but when we talk about the, the heart, you know, the, uh, the music festival... There was, I felt like we as a team <clears throat> had worked on those things in smaller situations, whether it was a staffing crisis where we could have really freaked out, where we came together, uh, remained optimistic, were able to get things in place so that we could prove, you know, to ourselves and move forward in our mission in a safe manner. And then when we did have this huge critical event, um, we were able to put all those things in play and see it through. So, um, I hope that answers kind of what what you what you were um, what you were looking for in that question because it's to me in my mind it's a very complex question in the sense that 
we're always working on it. Even now, I, th- I feel like there's days where, um, as you mentioned, I have two young daughters, 12 and 14. One's a seventh grader, one's a freshman. I'm getting put in situations I've never been in before, right? And um, and having to kind of understand, okay, this is unknown. Let me take a step back. We're going to get through this. Let's make sure we have the right the right vision going forward. So. Yeah, I gave my dad a shout out on episode one, but I guess he's getting another one on episode two is, you know, I was raised by a single dad for the most part. And I I know you're not single parenting or anything like that. And um, shout out to all the moms of the world. They do a very important job. But um, there is something about uh, raising teenage daughters as a man. Um, I just give so much respect to those men because that is not easy. I was something when I was a teenager. So, you know, kudos to my Keith, that's for sure. <laughs> but I... <laughs> and to that, I will say, I don't think it's just daughters too, though. I think uh, I remember back when I was a teenager and the things I put my parents through and all the uncertainty there. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think we can all say some of that from when we were teenagers. That's for sure, for sure. But I, so I briefly want to touch on, you know, you have a a slightly humble brag there, you know, CEO, 29, 30 years old. And I often hear you underplay this, but that is such a big deal. And I think something that so many people strive for is those titles at a young age. And I know that, you know, that's actually when you and I first met and kind of first started developing our friendship. And I really got to see you walk through so many of those challenges of early level years of high level leadership at a young age and the challenges that came with that. Um, But I do think that to, to your point of people telling you that you do remain very calm under pressure. I would echo that. And I think that's actually something I've always really admired about you because I really had to learn that skill. I don't actually think I'm a very calm person in general. And the amount of coffee I drink certainly doesn't help that particular problem. Um, But I've always really appreciated you for that reason. And I think that it is something that I've heard you often say is that it's something you had to practice. Like that was not necessarily, it is part of your demeanor, but it's something you had to continue to progress in. And I think that's really what leadership is about is that you have to want to be better at pretty much everything, especially the things you suck at. You know, like for me personally, I have to work to remain patient and calm all the time because those are not strong areas for me. And I really appreciate that when I see that in other leaders that I'm like, oh, you're trying to, like you are actually trying to continue to get better. And I think that says a lot about who you are as a human being. But I wanted to kind of, you know, we, we started going down this route, but one of the questions I had for you is if you could share how you remained optimistic during the music festival. I know that um, obviously a lot of my listeners and myself included, as you know, recently went through a school shooting, which was um, very traumatic. And I remember you were one of the very first people that reached out to me and shared your concern for me and my students and was just like, what do you need? I will be there on a plane. Like I, I'm here for you. And I so appreciate that. And I think part of that goes back to the experience you probably had here during the music festival. Can you share a little bit about that and how you remained optimistic through arguably one of probably the most challenging times in your career. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, and and my, my heart is still with you guys there. I know that was very traumatic. I think the days and weeks following what happened there, you know, was, um, you know, as the facts came out more, I could just tell that that was, it was going to sit in a different place with people that had been there through the music festival too, because all those emotions kind of come back of, um, of, safety and security and 
um, feeling vulnerability. And so, yeah, I still, I still think about you guys there. I know it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as a, a, a mass, you know, spread event, but it's still extremely critical to uh, remain trauma-informed with some of those uh, team members that you work with. So I, I definitely can appreciate what you bring to that team and what they, what they've gone through. Um, but, you know, I feel like it, it's, it's almost like a, it was a very surreal moment. Um, the, you know, one of the saddest days in the history of the United States, it was, it was the largest mass shooting, um, you know, ever. And when it occurred, it, it seemed like everything slowed down for me. Um, I'm very thankful and, um, and just grateful that I wasn't actually at the music festival. And, uh, but, you know, for, to kind of recap what had, you know, what had happened is we, we, I got the call, um, at the time I was the CEO of a psychiatric hospital there in, in Las Vegas. And, uh, one of my good friends who ran the employee assistance program for, um, one of the big, um, casino chains had called me and said, Hey, there's a, there's been a shooting on the strip at the uh, music festival. They're saying, you know, X number of people have passed away, but, um, we know it's way more from what's happening on the ground. And so, you know, if you remember, and again, just like you said, just disclosure for those that may have trauma around this, but, you know, initially it was very single digit numbers. And then by the end of the night, um, you know, it's well over 50. And so we, you know, we kind of sprung into action. He said, we're going to be expected to be down there. Um, in the morning, as soon as the sun comes up, ready to provide therapy, to provide counseling, to provide resources to, you know, you think these are tourists, there's thousands in every casino. And they were there. This was a very peak time for, for business, for visitation from other states to come in and go to these festivals. And um, it was a weekend when Imagine Dragons had played the first time ever at the big, you know, the big venue there in Vegas. So a lot of people had come back to Las Vegas that had grown up here. And so um, as the stories started to come out over the next few days, I think you, you know, you heard a lot of bravery, but initially it was just shock. And so and that was 10 o'clock in the morning throughout the night, me and and my team, we just kind of sprung into action knowing that. We have tens of thousands of people we have to provide behavioral health care for. Um, it's it's a definite crisis. Even if we didn't have to do that, the whole town is under a level of you know challenging emotion and trauma that we've never felt before. And it's not supposed to be this way. This is a fun town. People literally come to that town to have fun and get away from from things that are you know stressing them out in their lives. And this is the most stressful thing that's ever happened for the majority of the United States. And so. Um, so we were able to put together, though, a team to go down at 6 a.m. And uh, I still remember driving my SUV with, you know, full of therapists down to the strip as the sun was coming up. Nothing had been, you know, um, everything was taped off and everything was just how it was, you know, eight, nine hours before. And we set up down there and in about 15 different casinos and provided therapy for the tourists and therapy for the staff. I mean, there were the stories coming out of housekeepers that had been trapped in closets and their radios died. And, um, you know, there's thousands of rooms in those casinos and it took hours to find them. They didn't know 
what was happening outside the door. And so those are the people that we saw, again, as we were also going through this trauma that was impacting our city and our country, we were having to be there for, for these members of the community. So I remember doing a, and, and I'll get back to the value of this, but I remember driving, we did about 16 hour days for about 30 days back and forth. And I can remember that first week driving back and forth and just pulling over on the side of the road, going in in the mornings, and going home in the afternoons or evenings. And I just had to unload like on a video log, you know, because I didn't want to bring it home back. You know, my daughters were much younger, obviously then. And I didn't want to take anything home to them. I wanted to be, um, you know, transparent with myself that I knew this was affecting me as a leader. You have to go in there and not necessarily put on a bright face, but you have to be that, that um, kind of beacon for, um, positive energy and focused vision moving forward that we're going to get through this. We're going to make sure that everybody's taken care of. And so I remember that was something that I still take with me now that in it's, you know, you can say journaling, you know, but now we're, you know, I feel like even more progressive, you know, technology, you don't have to journal anymore. You can do a video log. So I literally just pulled up and just made, you know, five, 10 minute videos on the side of the road on the way home just to express and I always made it a point to say something positive. So I remember there was one day that I had seen some pretty horrific things. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, we ended up going down into the uh, cafeteria at the bottom of Mandalay Bay. There's like an employee cafeteria underneath the casino. And just seeing the resilience on people and kind of being there for them as they were eating dinner and listening to them say, like, I... I I have to come to work. I cannot let this this person, this monster, win, right? If I don't come to work and if I don't give everything that I have uh, for this, uh, you know, for these people that can't just hop on a flight and go home if their flight is not today, then I'm letting this guy win. And I remember feeling so um, grateful for having experienced that, but I shared that for the next couple of days. Like, hey, this is this is the type of, outlook that I think is so positive. We have to grieve. We have to make sure that we understand the impact, but we also have to know that um, we're carrying on, you know, a, you know, kind of this torch of we're going to be resilient. And um, it wasn't unrealistic. And I feel like I took a lot of, of, away from that. You know, I think when you get putting those situations, for me personally, it was, it was, not necessarily an uh, awakening event, but it was more where I, I felt like I had been so fortunate to have um, been around strong people in my team and I knew their strengths and they knew mine, um, that the optimism and the calmness came with some security and confidence that I knew um, what my capabilities were, I knew what my limitations were, and they knew uh, theirs and mine as well. And so I think when I think back to that night and the next 30 days, it's just one of those things that it's almost like a, a moment where everything came together um, that I felt like I had been trained on and I, I needed to be there for the city. I remember one night saying we witnessed, you know, as a team, we've witnessed the city lift itself up, right, and commit to never letting our neighbors suffer alone. And I think that stuck with me. And I, I remember saying that to myself and just thinking the power behind that. And as you know, you know, the donations poured in after that. I mean, it was, a, I don't know, 
10, 15 million dollars in like 10 days. And they now they have the resiliency center and the resilience that came out of that has taught us so much about human behavior and has taught us so much about what we're capable of um, as a society. So it was, a, a, like I said, a horrific event. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to have the skills to provide leadership during that time. But um, it's something I hope I never have to do again. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing so vulnerably. I feel like that time period is still so difficult for so many of us that were based in Las Vegas to even talk about. And our city has certainly rallied massively around, you know, community after that. And um, I am grateful for that because I think before Vegas was just Vegas. And I think now people know that it's Vegas strong and that we have a real community here and people live here. This is our home. Right. But I think that something you brought up that's um, really often overlooked in leadership is that when there is difficulty, I mean, even obviously we're talking about excessive tragedy right now, but even if it's not as difficult, it's a, it's a policy change in an organization. It's a frustrating day. It's raining outside. Um, oftentimes leaders tend to sugarcoat things and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a great day. Like, we're going to do this. It's going to be wonderful. Like, yay, go team. And that is often really alienating to um, team members because they look at that and they're like, are you like in what is happening? Like, this is not the same situation I'm seeing. Like, what are you talking about? And I love your reframe of that, how you can still be optimistic in those situations without basically lying, you didn't use that word, but I'm going to, is that I think oftentimes people like fall into this, that they need to sugarcoat or lie or make it seem so much better than it is. When in reality, I think leadership is often saying, this is a really, really difficult situation. And we're all in that together. And we're going to hold space for that difficulty. We're going to be here for one another. But we do have to progress. We have to move forward. We have to do our jobs in whatever capacity that looks like. So can you share just a little bit about basically how do you foster that optimism from a day-to-day perspective? I love that earlier you mentioned kind of mindfulness and breathing, and I think those are really useful tools for someone like myself that has done a lot of personal growth and development, and I know what those tools look like, but maybe for other people who are still newer in their leadership journey, whether they're leading teams of people yet, or maybe they're just leading themselves, and they're like, great, Chris, optimism sounds fun, but like, how do you actually do that? Yeah. And, you know, I, that's a great question. I think the, ta- you know, takeaways, if you, if you don't take away anything else from this, I think remember it's important to be calm and, and I'll, obviously I'll elaborate, but I think being calm is extremely important. And then you have to find a balance in your reaction. And so, and I'm going to speak from the, the point of uh, being a leader, but as a leader at, at any level, your actions are magnified. And I, you know, the higher up on the, you know, corporate chain or leadership um, organizational chart you go, um, I don't like the word higher, the more progressive you, you are in a leadership role, the, the more magnified those interactions are. And so if you think in terms of the time that you've interact with, let's think from an academic standpoint, you interacted with a department head or a faculty lead. Those interactions are fewer than your peers, but they hold a lot more weight. And then you think about the dean of your school and how fewer those interactions are 
and how much more weight they hold. And then you think about the president of the university and you may interact personally with them once a year and how much weight that interaction holds. And the same goes for leaders and the people that we lead or even the people you don't lead that just interact with you. If you appear in a time where optimism could be valuable, if you appear impatient, think about the policy change you mentioned, or if you appear fearful or frustrated, the people that are around you or look up to you or that you lead are going to sometimes emulate that, right? And they're going to feel less safe because they're looking to you for safety in those unknowing times, okay? And so to me, when I talk about finding that balance, so there has to be not this extreme negative of impatient frustration or fearful. Now, you could feel those things internally, but I think it's expressing them that's a different story. I think that's where self-awareness comes in, right? So I can tell you when COVID hit, I didn't live in Seattle. We know that COVID originated in the United States outside of Seattle. I was one of the people that for some reason ran to Seattle right after it happened. Um, but I remember being moving to Seattle in July of 2020, which was, you know, obviously a couple months after the COVID outbreak had happened and leading a hospital up here. And I remember coming, I remember going to work fearful internally of taking something home to my kids, of contracting COVID myself. But that was that fearfulness wasn't something that I overly displayed as a leader. I realized that I was, you know, from an emotional awareness standpoint, fearful. I challenged that emotion and trusted the, the PPE that we had and the precautions that we had in place. And so I was able to, I feel, move forward, not displaying those extreme emotions. Now, I think on the other side, excessive confidence, we'll say, can be something that's detrimental too, right? And so telling somebody that everything is going to be okay is not what people want to hear. I don't want to hear that from my leaders. When I know things are not going to be okay, they're going to be tough. And we didn't know when COVID was going to, you know, people are still passing away from COVID now. And that's not something that, to me, that's the other extreme. So finding that balance between the excessive confidence and being fearful or frustrated or outwardly impatient with even the smallest things, people are going to feel less safe and they're not going to follow you. So to me, finding middle ground and remaining calm are two big takeaways. The third takeaway is there's unknown. You have to realize that when you need to be the most optimistic is when there's unknown. Whether that's the path ahead, like I said before, whether that's something that has just happened and you don't know what the next thing that's going to fall is, that's when optimism is most important. That's when you have to be middle of the road as a leader. I love that particular answer. I mean, I literally was taking notes as you were talking and I was like, this was really good and that was really good and this is really good. But I think that when unknown is really hard 
for a lot of people, right? I think this is why many periods of our history in the United States is difficult for folks, but I think COVID being one of them is because there was so much unknown. We didn't know anything. And I think that change is so hard for so many people because we have been raised in a structure that loves stability. You know, we love knowing what comes next. We love, you know, understanding that this is phase A, this is phase B, they go right after each other. It's simplistic, right? Like that is that's desired by a lot of people. But you're completely correct in saying that like leadership's it, that's not how it works, period. <laughs> it's very, very rarely ABC in leadership. Um, managing projects, sure, maybe. Managing people, definitely not. It is never as easy as ABC. It's like A, Z, D, E, L, R, and then maybe J, right? And it's just, it's chaos. It's utter chaos um, in the best ways, but it is. And I think that I, something I wanted you to speak a little bit more about is basically reining in those emotions and how we display emotions, because I think that that is a challenge when it comes to unknown is that people immediately want to jump into like, how are they feeling? How are they feeling? How are they feeling? When in reality, like, sure, internally, you could be like, whoa, this is a lot. I don't even know how to process what's happening right now. But that does make people feel unsafe. And it makes them feel like your leader isn't stable and that they can't count on you. And that's the polar opposite of safety, right? And so I think all of us are looking for leaders that we can count on, that we know are reliable and accountable and that we can trust. And I think a lot of that goes to emotional regulation and showing up consistently as the same person and that folks know that they can count on us. So can can you talk a little bit more about that of how do you kind of walk that really delicate dance between showcasing, hey, I'm a human being, I have emotions just like you, and being vulnerable through those, but also I want to be consistent and stable for you so that you know that I, I can handle this. I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to fall apart at the seams. Yeah, I love everything you said, and I had all these things that were popping in my head, so I hope I remembering them all, but you know, I at the core of this and you touched on it a little bit is you have to be vulnerable right so what, what i what i don't want people to think is that you know being optimistic is that you're not the emotional in front of your teams right you have to be vulnerable so what i mean by that is you know it's okay to be scared when something scary is happening and saying hey guys like i'm just as scared as you are but here's what we're gonna do to get through it I think the other piece of being vulnerable is listening to feedback. And the biggest takeaway I can tell people when they say, how do I work on this? How do I hone this in? If you listen, people will tell you how to do it. I'll give you a perfect example. I, as a leader, as a father, um, I struggle, continue to struggle with wanting to solve problems that people bring to me. Okay. And I've had to realize and I have to continue to remind myself that, you know, people don't often bring problems to you for you to solve. They want you to listen and they want you to be there and they want you to, um, you know, if not provide encouragement, then just be empathetic. Right. And I've gotten that feedback from a lot of people, my daughter. I've gotten that feedback from people that I work with. And I think without that vulnerability, I would have never taken that and applied that to practice. I think that's one. 
so I think listening, people will tell you how to fix it or how to improve on, on being optimistic and calm and mindful. I think the other piece there is reframing and you have to intentionally reframe and it sounds like something that is either going to work for you or not. I'm telling you it works for everyone and it will, it's one of those things all, you know, you used to say it kind of in the army when you start new routines, right? You fake it till you make it. You have to remind yourself to reframe, whether it's put a sticky note on your mirror in the morning because you have trouble reminding yourself to reframe difficult conversations or difficult interactions or difficult situations um, or reading about what it means to reframe situations. You take COVID, for example. Um, well, maybe, maybe we've talked about COVID. Let's say, um, you know, you've been challenged with an, an, an incident at work where you're short on resources. You know you need 10 widgets to do something, and now your boss has only given you eight. And so, obviously, if it has to do with safety, that's a different story. But if it has to do with the amount of work you're going to have to put in versus how easy it was before, reframing that so intentionally so that you don't see that as a roadblock, right? That you see that as a problem that you are going to solve and you're going to learn from it. And when you think, when you then go back and apply that to something like COVID, we could have, if there weren't people who reframed these roadblocks of how am I going to get my therapy appointment done? Or how am I going to, um, you know, counter uh, going to class when I'm sick or as a professor, if I'm contagious, but maybe I'm not showing symptoms. If we didn't have people that saw those roadblocks as opportunities and problems to solve and learn from, we wouldn't have telehealth. We wouldn't have online classes at the rate that we do now. And so I think a lot about how people have became really strong leaders through crisis and they've and it's been because of that outlook that able that ability to reframe and they're able to have that calmness and optimism that has allowed them to reframe if you tried to and maybe that's too forward if i feel like if someone tries to stay calm and reframe when they're feeling an intense amount of fear or um, they're being extremely impatient it's impossible and so all of those things kind of go together, right? So being able to be mindful when something happens, you know, I, I suffer from PTSD and PTSD symptoms. And I have, you know, I, when I first came back, it was rough. And so when I would hear a loud noise, I would initially get these physiological interactions or emotional uh, kind of dysregulation that would occur. And over time, working with someone, I, I've been able to see those things as they come up and feel like, okay, I'm aware my heart rate is going up. This is why, this is why I feel like a little sense of anxiety or impending doom and walk through that and talk about in my mind how to reframe those things. And so, but initially when I was fearful or frustrated or impatient, um, there's no way I could have reframed. And so it, it's a balance. Um, but again, I think calm walking that road, listening to feedback those are there's a huge vulnerability and humility and listening to feedback especially as a leader um and jenna you and i have often 
I think going back to the very first time that we've met, this has been one of the core um, aspects of how we've both grown as leaders is um, leadership now. Those that are successful are vulnerable and have humility. And I firmly believe, we talked about being young leaders, I think you see leaders so much more mature, not saying that I'm a more mature leader, but I think that you see leaders mature more on an, on an, uh, an enhanced level because they are vulnerable um, to learning feedback more. And there's not that one size fits all way to leadership where you need 40 years of service before you're an expert in something. If you take the feedback that I give you now as you're trying to climb the ladder as fast as you can versus, you know, you can't tell me what I'm doing wrong because I know I'm right. Um, you're going to, you're going to outpace your peers, you know? Yeah, I do agree. I think that's something that's always set us apart is that I think both of our goals as leaders and teachers in our own spaces has always been that like, I'm going to invest into you so that you can be better than me. Like my goal is that like when I'm investing time and energy and effort and resources into someone, I'm like, you better be awesome when I am done investing into you as in so much better than me. And that is how, that's how I know I'm doing a good job as a leader. That's how I know that that the people I'm leading are actually going to go out and change the world. Um, because I think that that should be every leader's goal is that our, if our goal is just to hold people hostage and to hold them down. I mean, that's, that's not a leader. That's, that's a dictator. Actually, <laughs> that's the polar opposite. I appreciate you. I appreciate you being with us. I appreciate your feedback and your honesty and your vulnerability. I think especially as a male leader, which I am not, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of pressure on you all to be perfect. Um, and I really appreciate that you always show up in spaces as the vulnerable human being you are. So thank you for being with us, Chris. Thank you for joining us today on Tearing Up My Heart Emotional Leadership Lessons Podcast. I hope you learned so much and are ready to tear up old notions and get started on your leadership journey. Make sure to follow us at Jay Heath Moreno, and I hope you'll join us next time.